And because you have this obligation in dollars, you have to pay your taxes in dollars, you are going to want other people to give you money exchange for your goods. You know, so if you sell bicycles or whatever, you know, you're not going to sell them for euros because if you did, you'd just have to pay money to switch them into dollars. So to save yourself that headache, you say, all right, I'm only going to sell bicycles for dollars. And even if your customer, okay. And then, and then the customers want dollars because they want to be able to buy bicycles from you. And even if they are, you know, their income is so low that they don't actually pay taxes. They don't own any properties. They don't pay, pay property taxes. They don't have any employees. So they don't pay social security taxes or anything like that. They still need dollars because the store needs dollars because the government makes them need dollars. So there's this cascade of liabilities that causes people at the end of the chain to need uh, whatever the people at the top of the chain say that they need. Welcome to Activist NNT, a podcast about real-world economics, including modern money theory, and how life changes when you discover it. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. talk with lawyer and independent economics researcher Jonathan Wilson on the reality of the petrodollar or reserve currency, focusing especially on his unique and easy-to-understand cool stuff hypothesis. Jonathan's article on the topic can be found on his website pmpecon.com, and a direct link can also be found in the show notes. The Cool Stuff Hypothesis is a realistic look at how and why a country's currency is desired, spent, and saved by people both in and out of that country. The playful phrase, cool stuff, was inspired by Stephanie Kelton and her 2020 book, The Deficit Myth, which takes 25 years of MMT academic scholarship and boils it down for a popular non-academic audience. Aside from the academic concepts, what most impressed me about the book is how Stephanie successfully and simultaneously teaches these concepts to those who know nothing, and also teaches me, who at the time had been studying the topic for two and a half years, things I never knew. I compare this to how the best movies and kids' music can appeal to both adults and kids. Regarding the Cool Stuff Hypothesis, a gallon of 2% milk is not cool. You can go into one of many stores and reliably and inexpensively find a decent gallon of milk. The stores that sell these uncool products are uncool stores. They're a dime a dozen. On the other hand, some products are cool. 
They're unique and more difficult to get, and you can only find them at a select number of stores or maybe even one. These stores are therefore cool. We go out of our way to shop there because we want their cool stuff. And it's no different on the international scale. Most countries sell uncool stuff, and some sell very cool stuff that can't be obtained anywhere else. An example of uncool stuff is a customer support call center or website and content creators. An example of cool stuff is the airplanes and airplane parts sold in the United States, such as by Lockheed Martin. A distant second are those sold by Airbus in France. Of course, a store can be cool because it genuinely makes cool stuff. It can also be cool by killing off all its competitors so it's the only game left in town. An example is an international conglomerate entering a local market, charging below cost for as long as it takes to kill off every local competitor, and then using its monopoly power to price gouge. On the international level, as illuminated by the work of Fadl Kaboob and others. A common example is a less powerful country being deceived into predatory loans by a more powerful country. This foreign denominated debt puts the less powerful nation into debt peonage and a perpetual cycle of doing what's best to pay off that short-term debt at the cost of its citizens' daily and long-term survival. It also makes it impossible for that country to ever become cool. What's unique in the international context, however, is that the products from a country can only be purchased with that country's currency. This is because the companies therein must pay taxes in that currency and also must pay their employees and suppliers in that same currency because they too have that tax obligation. It means that anyone who wishes to buy a product from a country, whether a citizen or not, must obtain that currency. Just like a national deficit is the only thing giving citizens wealth, a trade deficit is the only thing that can give foreigners the money with which to buy their cool stuff, both now by spending and in the future by saving. This interview with Jonathan is in three parts. In part one, he describes how he discovered MMT starting with Sam Levy, and then summarizes his cool stuff hypothesis. In part two, he finishes that summary, and then we connect the hypothesis to the ridiculous and hyperbolic theory of the petrodollar. In part three, we drastically change subjects. For the past nine months, Jonathan has assisted me in developing a full and free online course that's not directly or explicitly MMT but is critical for those who want to better understand it. It's based on the work of Asad Zaman, who was my guest in episodes 56 and 57, and is titled Historical Context for Real World Economics. The course is produced by activist MMT and hosted by Bill Mitchell's MMT Ed and Isha Krishnaswamy's Historically. More on that in part three. For now, let's get on to part one of my conversation with Jonathan Wilson. Enjoy. So what's up? How you doing? Oh, I'm good, man. I, I'm good. You know, it's it's the holidays. Um, you know, went out of town to visit my in-laws mm. for a week, and next week I'm gonna go 
to visit my folks. Uh, where, where does, where do they all live? You're, you're oh, in Houston, Texas, I think, right? Austin. Yeah. Austin. Um, yeah. And then my, yeah, my in-laws are in Atlanta and my folks are in Sacramento. Whoa. So we're okay. right in the middle, which is nice. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And you're, and this is the first Christmas you'll have in the new house, right? It was first Hanukkah we had in the new house, but yes, also Christmas. But we're, we're Jewish, so we celebrate uh, Hanukkah. Oh, okay, cool, cool. Happy yeah. Hanukkah! That I think the the candle burning already started for that. Is that right? It it just ended. It ended oh, on nice. Friday. I think Friday, maybe a week ago. Um, but yeah, we're we're not religious at all. But um, the one thing that we do is is you you know you light the candles and you sing a song and. And I, I, I assume you, you know basically what the what the religion what the holiday represents. You know the story. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, you like, were had an oil, and you didn't think it would last until the end of the, the period that it was supposed to last. I, I forget what it was supposed to be for, it, but a, it, yeah, basically a temple. So there was a temple, and yeah. they only had oil enough for one day, and you have to keep the whatever the, the there's a candle in the in the synagogue that has to be lit all the time for some reason and they only had oil enough for one day but it lasted eight days so they call that a miracle okay. um, so it's it's actually not really like people th- say that it's kind of you know the jewish version of christmas but it's really kind of a minor holiday but for us we're not religious and so this is the one thing we do which is light the candles and just hold hands and sing songs Sing a sing the song as we light the candles. That's the only religious thing we do all year long. So it's uh, you know it's kind of just a nice little thing. Um, uh, actually, just before we get started, I had a dream that I was an hour late for our interview, but you were an hour and twenty minutes late. So thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so all right, so let's do it. Uh, John, hello. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, why don't you introduce yourself and, uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Let's start with that. Sure. I'm, all right. I'm Jonathan Wilson. I'm an independent, uh, economics researcher, uh, based out of Austin, Texas. I run the post-monetarist political economy Institute, uh, which is pmpe.com where I post my working papers and, shorter, so slightly less academic articles about MMT, uh, political economy, and that sort of thing. There's a, a tab on there called Working Papers that has the, the more academic ones. That's where, I'm, that's where I've posted my uh, empirical model for inflation risk reduction, and it's where I plan on posting my sort of in-depth MMT uh, banking primer as soon as that's done. Um, oh, wow. Yeah I've, yeah, I've gotten the first draft of it done. Right now I'm just getting feedback. Warren's been helping me. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. I, I was, I mean, he's, he's so great. You know, you just email him or, you know, tweet him and he'll he'll get back to just about anybody with about pretty much anything. Um, hmm. Yeah. Um, and then I, I asked Rohan Gray for some help as well. And he said he would take a look. That's wonderful. I, I assume that you've read uh, Timoin, Derek Timoin's banking uh, book. 
Uh, not the book, but I read um, a couple of papers that he's put out, and then I read um, Stephanie Kelton's paper. Uh, you know about all of the ways that um, the Treasury has to get around the fact that uh, it can't sell securities directly to the central bank. See, so that was uh, you know a big inspiration for the for the paper, and then you know a lot of it was just. Um, sort of my own research, like digging deep into the, the regulations. I can give you a, a short preview about about what it's about, and then uh, we can talk about other stuff. Okay. So basically, the, the, the paper is explaining how it can be the case that chartalism, meaning that the state is the monopoly issuer of the currency, is true even though commercial banks issue 90% of the credit money that gets passed back and forth. And the, the short version of that is that even though they have this ability, they're very much constrained by state regulations, both in terms of their ability to issue deposits and also their ability to clear payments. And the effect of that is that um, you know if your bank doesn't do what the government wants it to do, then the amount of money that you actually have is is limited. Even if your bank says that you have a million dollars in the bank, but for whatever reason they haven't, you know, maintained their proper ratios, you know, of capital or of liquidity. And they, you know, don't have the reserves to process payments. Then, in a then, in effect, you don't actually have that million. You have whatever that sort of lower number would be. And that's that's the sort of like the main gist of it. Hmm. The first thing that comes to mind, and and I I think you could probably respond to this not too in depth. The MMT statement of before hearing you say any of this. The government is the monopoly issuer of the currency, assumes that banks are agents of the government. So it's still accurate. If banks also create money, they are agents of the government. So it's still accurate to say that the government is the only entity that can create money. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's sort of like the the standard line. But I, I wanted to get you know a, a bit more in depth into that and also sort of discuss um, – you know, banks that were sort of outside of the system, um, shadow banks, as it were, and and euro dollar banks, to to get like a more general theory of the relationship between banks and the government that that didn't rely on this sort of agent, you know, the agent principle framework, you know, because shadow banks, you know, and euro dollar banks are basically just financial institutions that are not part of the Federal Reserve's system. And so they rely on banks that are in the Federal Reserve system to clear payments to this treasury, most importantly, and then to also to other banks in the Federal Reserve system. And I wanted to, you know, highlight the the limitations that banks are put under, even when it comes to dealing with banks outside of the system as a way of like 
really trying to get people to understand that, yeah, banks can issue all of this money, but they can't just sort of do whatever they want. And their ability to clear payments, which is the most important function of money, you know, they say it's, it's the three functions, it's store of value, uh, means of exchange, and unit of account. The most important one of those is means of exchange. And that is very much limited by uh, their ability to maintain access to the discount window, the, the overdraft facility, and their ability to have uh, to to have accounts at other banks, a reserve a reserve account. So they have a reserve account in good standing. Well, yeah, they ha- they have to be in good standing in order to have access to the uh, discount window and the um, overdraft facility. And if they don't have access to either one of those things, then they actually do need to have the reserves first before they can clear any payments. Because normally what happens if a bank you know, needs to make a $100 payment, but they only have $50 in reserves, they automatically get an overdraft. You know, So they'll be negative 50, and then they have to you know, get that back to zero by the end of the day, right? Mm-hmm. You know, but if a bank has completely just sort of gone past its capital adequacy requirements, and its uh, liquidity liquidity coverage ratio requirements, then it'll lose access to the overdraft facility, or it'll have much more limited overdrafts. And in that circumstance, it would actually need to get money beforehand. Hmm. So ninety percent of the time, you know, we say that banks are not reserve constrained. Yeah, and that, that's still true. But if they screw up really badly, then in essence, they they would become reserve constrained because they would essentially become not a bank. Yeah. They would just be, a um, yeah, they would lose access to the things that like make the banking system liquid and, um, flexible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so when roughly does, would you see this paper being finished at least in its first form? Hopefully by the end of February. Okay, not too long. Yeah. All right. Um, all right. Good luck with that. Uh, why don't we go? Can you describe what was your thinking like before you ever heard of MMT? Did you follow economics at all? What was your? Were you duped by you know particular myths or whatever? So, what was your thinking like before you ever heard of MMT or you know uh, more broadly real world economics? But for us, that's MMT. Yeah, so before I had heard of MMT, because I probably heard of it first in in college, and before that, you know, I just thought that, um, you know, that you know the standard line of like, oh, we can deficit spend as long as interest rates are are lower than the rate of growth, um, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, because if in that instance, you know, we'll always be able to get more money than we'll have to pay. Mm-hmm. So I was never. Uh, deficit hawk or a debt hawk and i was skeptical of you know the importance of the national debt because have you ever heard of um speech and debate like high school speech and debate i mean just the concept of debate club and and 
Yeah. It's, it's, they, I don't know what you mean beyond that. Oh, they, they have like, you know, they have like these big tournaments um, that, that are hosted by, you know, Stanford and, and Harvard and stuff. And, and you can go to those and, and, you know, and, and every year, you know, they put out a new resolution that you have to debate. And, and usually it's something that uh, is going to involve, you know, the government spending money. Um, like one year it was, the resolution was that uh, you have to come up with a, a, a justification and a way of like getting more people to join the uniformed services. You know, obviously that, that means spending money and, you know, you, you lay out your plan and the other side lays out their plan, their, their, their critiques and their disadvantages. And one of them is always the spending disadvantage. And, and it is always the same thing. It, it, al- it is always, it is always, we are, we being the United States, you know, is deeply in debt. And if we spend any more money, you know, we'll hit it. We'll hit the debt ceiling. They won't raise it, <laughs> and that'll cause a collapse of, you know, the international economy, and that'll lead to global thermonuclear war that will end all <laughs> life on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean that's honestly most uh, disadvantages in policy debate try to link to nuclear war if if possible. Um, <laughs> It's either that, or it's, or you're going to critique the language that a person used, um, okay. using, you know, Nietzsche sometimes. And, and the point that you have to make is that your like very use of the language is harmful to the to the the concept of of debate, and you should lose for that reason. Very, very you know, intentionally sort of glossing over that because I, I never cared about that aspect of things. But yeah, so spend too much money in nuclear war. Um, <laughs> and this was an argument that was made all four years that I did speech and debate. And, and after hearing that so many times and after not dying in a nuclear war, I started to think, okay, well, maybe this that stuff doesn't matter that much. <laughs> I still thought, oh, you know, we probably need to tax rich people, but I. It was dangerous. The debt is dangerous, but not that dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you would ask me like, oh, what will happen if we just never pay it off? I would probably say, like, oh, that's fine, but we should still try to run surpluses at some point. And, and I obviously don't think that anymore. Um, so I, I got introduced to MMT actually through Sam Levy. Oh. We were we were classmates at USC. Actually, no, we weren't classmates. We were both in the marching band together. University he, of South Carolina? No. Of, yeah? of Southern California. Southern California? Oh. Yeah, we were both Trojans. I had no idea. I mean, I knew you knew Sam now. I knew you were... Doing, I knew you knew him. I knew you knew him, but I had no idea that you had that history. So what what did you guys play? I uh, was a trombone player, and he played the alto sax. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, uh, a little bit shocked. A little bit. 
not not that you guys play, but that you guys played together. This is the more shocking part. But yeah, no, I mean, I I bet it's uh, you know crazy from the from the outsider's perspective. But for for me, it's like, oh yeah, it's my buddy, and then he told me about this thing, and now I you know have this website. He, he's really really awesome in music. He has a um, a really good ear. Um, you know, before he went to his PhD program, he um, was an audio engineer f- for um, stage productions. And I think he still I, does that a little bit. He does. He just tweeted about it. Actually, my very first interview on my podcast was with Sam Levy, and we spent 10 minutes talking about en- audio engineering. Okay, yeah. So you, you know you know all the all the the secrets, and the listeners can go back to episode one if they want to hear that. Uh, there's one thing that that they haven't heard a story about Sam that uh, I'll share, and he he doesn't remember this, even though I've showed him the video. Mm-hmm. Our senior year, we went to New York City because the football team was playing University of Syracuse, and even though. The game was taking place in the Jets Stadium, which was in New Jersey. We were staying in New York City, or rather, we, we went into New York City for a like a big rally. So you're talking about music as as this marching band? Yeah, as the as the marching band, we went in to play for a rally for all of the USC fans and alums who lived in the city. Okay. And after the rally was over, they let us explore, and we went up on that. Um, I forget what it was called, like the Green Belt or the Green Line or something. There's like a decommissioned above ground subway train thing that they turned into a park. And while we were up there, you know, we 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 came, you know, there's there's people selling their wares, there's street performers, and there was this this old Chinese man playing um, uh, a stringed instrument that I, I had never seen before. It only had one string. Mm. you know but it had a bow kind of like a violin and, and you and it was upright like a like a cello or something and uh you know he was playing something and then you know we talked to him for a little bit and then he he told sam that he could play and this is an instrument that none of us had ever seen or heard of before but sam takes the the bow and he fiddles around with it for about ten, 10 seconds and then after those 10 seconds, he's like, okay, I understand this instrument. And then he starts playing mm. the school fight song on it. Mm. Wow. T- 10 seconds. And he, and then he already knows where, uh, you know, where all the notes are, um, <laughs> you know, how to, how to play them, mm. you know, with the right pressure to put on the string. It was crazy. Wow. And you said you had a video, a video of what? Of, of him, him playing, playing the, yeah. You actually, you recorded that. Oh, wow. Give, give it to me. I'll, okay. I'll insert it. I'll insert it right here. Oh, that'll be great. <laughs> so is that the end of that story? Is there more to that story? No, that's the end. Okay. Okay. Okay.
That's really cool. I was going to ask, and I, I'm pretty sure the answer is no. I, th- I was going to ask: is was the bow, was the bow, uh, the string and the wood around the string of the instrument? I don't think it was. Meaning, you, uh, was the bow something you could separate <clears throat> from the instrument, or was the bow something that hung on to the instrument by the string? But I, I'm pretty sure the answer mm. is no. It was not hanging on. I don't think it was hanging on. No, I think it was like a free floating thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow, that's a great story. That's a great story. Especially, I, I, I knew that he was into music. I didn't know. I had no idea that he actually made music himself. That's pretty cool. Yeah, um, and he, he used to he used to arrange a lot as well. Um, I don't think he has time for it anymore. But you know, he he showed me some of his arrangements. Um, they're good for marching band, I presume. Yeah, yeah. Huh. That's cool. That's cool. Um, wow. Okay. Uh, so you were talking about, do you have any memories of him actually, how he introduced you to MMT or even why? Like, what did you say that, that kind of caused him to say, well, you know? Um, I don't remember sort of how the conversation went, but uh, it led to me sort of looking at all of his uh, – deficit owls videos that he had posted on twitter and on the deficit owls youtube page and i and i quickly found that uh i was just completely absorbed by this topic because i had had that sort of prior experience and doubt of like wondering like what exactly is this this national debt thing it doesn't matter that much it can't matter as much as uh you know everyone says it does and i had always been interested in in policy and when I started watching the the videos, I was like, oh, wow. So this is completely different than um, what anyone is talking about. And it, and it makes so much sense. Hmm. Like, obviously, the government can't run out of its money. And obviously, inflation is the limit. And obviously, the quantity of money theory is wrong. Hmm. You know, well, I just, what, what I, spe- do you have any specific... Do you have any specific memories of a particular light bulb, whether it was from Sam or from a video that you watched of like that, you know, it was a particular insight for you. Do you have any memories of that? Or is it just kind of a general? Oh, oh yeah. It was probably um, one of the videos of Warren giving his, um, his business card and then, you know, guy with a gun analogy. Hmm. Yeah. Th- yeah. There's a, there's a couple of those up. I don't remember which one it was, but I watched one of those and I said, Oh, okay. Of course that's all you would need to do to start a currency is to be able to have, you know, force over something and it would be valuable for that reason. Hmm. You know, and then I, you know, then of course, like, you know, you look into Weimar and, and um, the Confederacy and Zimbabwe and, you know. The Confederacy, I mean, that's an interesting example. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, uh, both the Confederacy and the, I'm trying to think of what was it called? I guess like the Continental Congress, you know, in the 1770s, you know, mm-hmm. both of those governments dealt with, um big 
inflation problems uh, that, that was caused by a combination of counterfeiting from the other side uh, and right. That's what I was going to say about regarding the uh, the the South at the North. One of the a major tactic was to counterfeit their money and send it down. Exactly, counterfeiting and also just the inability to enforce tax uh, collection because they didn't have, I guess, like the police force or or the the legal institutions to go around and you know make sure everyone was paying because they were they were fighting a war at the time and also everything was a lot less connected you know it's not like now where you know the irs already knows half of what you do economically they had to go around and find people who were you know living in these you know really spread out regions particularly in you know the more western areas of the country um right and telecommunications exactly yeah now now we have telecommunications is so much easier and the same, the same with you know with with Weimar, like their institutions were completely shot to nothing. So the the mere act of enforcing the tax and convincing people that that oh if you don't pay it something bad will happen was just removed in all of those scenarios. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Uh, actually, it's kind of makes me think of a UBI a little bit too. You, Warren just told me that you know you impose a tax obligation and then you give them the money to pay that tax obligation. Well, what does that help you if the purpose is to pres- per, um, what is it called? Uh, the, the, state, the, the money story begins per, with provision, provision in the public provision. sector. Yeah, yeah. So if you, if your purpose is to provision yourself, but then you give them the money to pay the taxes, then you're not going to get provisioned. So. Um, uh, okay. Okay. Anything else regarding uh, discovering MMT? Uh, only that it, it took me a long time to get around to reading the deficit myth. Uh, because <laughs> so when I had... was when was when did you watch these deficit myth videos? I mean, you know, when did this light bulb happen? Roughly, this is when I was in law school. Probably no, no, no. I, I probably first discovered it in college. So this would have been like 2012, maybe 2011 or something, unless I'm just completely misremembering. I'm surprised the deficit myth existed back then. I honestly don't know, but I'm oh, surprised. Oh, no, the, the deficit myth did not exist back then. Not, but, not, no, deficit yeah. myths. That's not what I meant. Deficit owls. Yeah. Uh, or some of the, the blog posts and that sort of thing were definitely around. And then I sort uh. of read, then I sort of rediscovered it again in like 2014, 2015 when I was in law wow. school. Wow. Okay. That by then, you know, all the videos were definitely up. Sure. Sure. And uh, then, you know, sort of took another break from it. You know, from learning about it you know, as I was like studying for the bar, and then you know, working my first job out in California, and then I th- I think after moving to Austin. I really found that I had a lot more time to to do research for a, for a number of reasons. Like, cause, you know, when I started a new job, things were really slow at the beginning and I didn't know anyone out here and it was the pandemic. So it was not like I could go out and do anything. So it was like, all right, I'm either going to watch TV or I'm going to read articles about economics. And so I read hundreds of articles between 
uh, Bill Mitchell's blog and uh, New Economic Perspectives. Hmm. Then I think probably the first like MMT book that I ever bought was uh, Clint Ballinger's mm. uh, Th- Thousand Castaways book, which I which is very nice. good. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, listeners, go out and and get a copy of that. I have a. I interviewed him on the book. Yeah, real smart guy. So I read him. I read Brian Romanchuk, uh, Pavlina. And then I got around to reading um, the Deficit Myth. After a while, I, I, I had read so much, I knew that um, it would mostly be review for me. Mm-hmm. But I decided to read the Deficit Myth because I wanted to understand the language and the framing and the pedagogical strategies that Stephanie used in order to make these topics accessible, mm-hmm. you know, and just, and because cause that's something that she's often unfairly criticized for is not going super in depth into, you know, uh, topics that, you know, mainstream economists want her to talk about in the deficit myth. It's an, it's an unfair criticism because it's, it's a book aimed at the popular audience. You know, you, you would just be turning them off if you had, you know, hundreds of, of footnotes and, you know, appendices and all, and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to get a sense of like, you know, where, what is the expectation for a more public focused uh, writing? Cause that's because I was thinking about starting my own website at the time. And I've used sort of some of her strategies and, and sort of tone in some of my own writing, particularly in the most recent piece, which we talked about a little bit uh, yesterday in the day four. Mm-hmm. Well, did uh, did you learn something from the deficit myth anyway? I'm not, I'm not, you don't, you know, not necessarily you remembered every single thing, but did you feel like you actually learned something from it as opposed to it was just review? Probably. Um, my, my memory is not super great. So, you know, it all sort of just gets, you know, melded back there in a mush. There, there was probably one or two things. It was like, oh, okay, that's something I hadn't considered before, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you what they were. But mostly, but, so mostly it felt like a review for you. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say it was 90% review. So yeah, if you're the type of person who has been reading Bill Mitchell's blog and the new economic perspectives, then the okay, deficit okay. review will, will just be a nice summary and consolidation of what you already know. Okay. Okay. I have not read as much of Bill as many other people. So that I learn. I mean, I'm sure that that is a reason why, I mean, talk about in depth. Um, I did, I, I can't really remember what it was. It's, you know, I read it right, pretty much right when it came out, but I remember feeling like, I learned some pretty significant stuff from that book, even though I had been studying it for, it was 2020. So I had been studying it for two years at that point or two and a half years at that point. So even though- What were some of the things that you thought were- I don't remember. I don't remember, but I remember the feeling of there were like two significant kind of like, I didn't know that, you know? And and the fact that it, what it came, what what struck me most aside from the specific- is that she wrote a book for someone who knows nothing and yet someone who has been studying intensely at that point for like two, two and a half years got something very significant out of it. So that the fact that she can reach both of those audiences simultaneously is, is 
is a good skill is, is an impressive thing. You know, it's, it actually is, it's very similar to me. It, it, it evokes um, Pixar movies, like really good movies can appeal to both adults and kids at the same time, you know, and it's that kind yeah. of, uh, you know, and it, and it really, it's, it's just, it's genuine. It's real. It's not pandering. It's not, it's just, it just to me is like, if it's truly genuine, it's going to appeal to both audiences of, of less experienced and more experienced or whatever. You know, I just feel like, you know, Pixar movies are really good. They're really good. And there's some kids music, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, Justin Roberts and some, and, and some uh, the kids albums from They Might Be Giants. These are kids' albums that I choose to listen to when I'm by myself. Like, they're that good. And the kids really enjoy them as well. So it's just that mm. being able to, being able to, roughly saying it, being able to dumb it down without treating them like they're dumb. I think that's kind of, that kind of summarizes it. That's a, that's a kind of out there and kind of a little broad, but, but that kind of is the feeling that, that I got from the deficit myth and that I get from the other things I was describing. Yeah, exactly. I, I think she, um, she gives you some big concepts, but she, she trusts you to understand them, but she also sort of gives you the support to sort of walk your way up to it. You know, like she doesn't hit you right off the bat, you know, with, all this complicated stuff. She's like, all right, let's go to the foundation. Let's talk about what you probably already know, but not in like a condescending way. And then Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, now that we've established a little bit of common ground, we can, you know, move forward into the claims that I'm going to try to make um, Mm -hmm. about the nature of taxation and spending. Right. Yeah. And she does, like I said, there's, 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 there's nuance that's not there that you don't need to know unless you're going to have nerdy conversations. But she was smart to leave that out, I think. Yeah, I, I didn't feel like anything was missing, knowing that it's knowing its role in the overall, you know, uh, repository of academic stuff. You know, it, it fits it. She made a decision and she confidently went with that decision. Exactly. Exactly. Because yeah, because regular people don't need to know about uh, Treasury central bank consolidation and you know philosophical questions about you know what is money is money really debt um, you know she just breaks it down it's like there's the government and then there's us mm-hmm. and the money goes back and forth between the two and between us. And just think about what that means if the government taxes away all the money mm-hmm. or doesn't spend any money. Right. It's kind of funny. I just spoke with Ron Placone. My episode 100 was Ron Placone. It was just released. And he actually read debt first. And then he read the deficit myth. And he was like, you know, the deficit myth just made – it was a lot easier to convince him because he, because he had that, I mean, really kind of core foundation going in so that was pretty cool um uh okay so so uh why don't we get into your your uh um petrodollar paper yeah sure so why don't you give an an overview Uh, it's a very good it's it it actually really 
I feel like I understand it a lot better. I don't know if I can connect it as easily to the petrodollar, which is kind of what I was saying to you, you know, make that connection more obvious. But but I I, I think it's a really good analogy of, uh, you know, the cool stuff and the cool countries and all that. Um, uh, so, so give a summary of that and just, you know, whatever, whatever however you think. All right. Uh, yes, yeah, so I'll give a summary. I'll, I'll probably start by sort of connecting it to core MMT and then trying to expand out. So actually, keep, yeah. it, the, actually, I didn't even realize it's kind of, you just, you're saying core MMT is what made me think of this. You're actually, I see, I know I'm totally interrupting you. I asked you a question and I'm not interrupting your answer. Um, I see MMT being three parts, core MMT, which is basically kind of domestic MMT, the basics, then Fadl's work, which is developing nations of not sovereign countries, essentially coercion. And then I see the glue that holds those two together is John Harvey's work of exchange rate determination. And your post, your petrodollar post kind of spans all three of those. So the petrodollar and your theory, your hypothesis, kind of spans all three of those. So it kind of helps glue the entirety together, like you know, the, the global view, the global MMT view. So go ahead. Sorry. Oh, cool. Yeah, I that was definitely sort of uh, part of the intention was to sort of connect some of Fadl's work um, to some of the more domestic stuff. And I, and I had also had read, you know, some of John Harvey's stuff and, and listened to some of his interviews as well. And I had that sort of in the back of my mind when I was writing this. It's interesting that you that you break down core MMT as almost like a geographic, you know, core versus outside core. When I, my framework is that core MMT is the stuff that's like specifically about like the legal relationships and the accounting relationships between the the treasury and the central bank. And then the more peripheral stuff is the inflation stuff. And then the even more peripheral stuff is the, uh, the developing nations sort of foreign trade stuff. Hmm. Yeah. But anyway, uh, what were we talking about? Oh yeah. Yeah. So core MMT for, <laughs> for me is, uh, um, we were talking about the marching band. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we, we, I, I got stories, but that's for another time. Uh, core, core MMT. One of the key things for me is that rather than being this sort of uh, abstract thing that we value simply because it's rare and because ev- other people value it, money is valuable because we can get stuff in exchange for it. So it's not just that, oh, there's only $1,000 in existence, therefore I want this just because it's rare. Um, no, it's because if you give certain people one of those dollars, they'll give you something else. And some of that is legally required, like the government is required to give you tax relief uh, in exchange for dollars. Certain goods and services the government is required to provide if you, you know, if you tender money to them. Like for example, if you go to the post office and you know offer them a dollar, they they have to give you a stamp. 
it's 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 not optional. Um, the the statutes are very clear. That wow, that's an interesting way a, of putting it. <laughs> I mean, like you know, like a store could say, "I'm not going to serve you," but you're saying kind of saying the post office can't do that. That's yeah. I think I think if I mean if you like went in there with a gun or whatever, you know, they wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, or I guess if if you went with a gun, they'd have to serve you, right? But I. Uh, <laughs> But uh, now I guess if you went and you were really rude and you were throwing water balloons at the staff, they could throw you out. But if you, but if you're just, you know, acting like a normal person, you're like, say, I'd like to buy a stamp. Here's a dollar. They can't be like, no, I don't feel like it. Because huh. they have a duty to provide postal services at a reasonable price. And, and reasonable price is actually in the statute, which I think is, is fascinating. Um, hmm. You know, so, so people like to say that, oh, the dollar is not convertible into, into anything. I sometimes like to say that the dollar is convertible into stamps hmm. because that's the one service that's sort of like that, uh, that is owned by the federal government that everyone sort of has access to. That's really interesting. Yeah. And that it, it gives, it obligates itself to provide that to you anyway. So that's a uh, small aside, but anyway, so, but we, we can stick to taxes because that's, that's the easiest way. So you know, you're a business, you are able to give money to the government, they have to give you tax relief. And because you have this obligation in dollars, you have to pay your taxes in dollars, you are going to want other people to give you money exchange for your goods. You know, so if you sell bicycles or whatever, you know, you're not going to sell them for euros. Because if you did, you just have to pay money to switch them into dollars. So to save yourself that headache, you say, all right, I'm only going to sell bicycles for dollars. And even if your customer, okay, then then the customers want dollars because they want to be able to buy bicycles from you. And even if they are, you know, their income is so low that they don't actually pay taxes, they don't own any properties, they don't pay, pay property taxes, they don't have any employees, so they don't pay social security taxes or anything like that. They still need dollars because the store needs dollars because the government makes them need dollars. So there's this cascade of liabilities that causes people at the end of the chain to need uh, whatever the people at the top of the chain say that they need. And so we've talked about from the government to the store owner to the customer and then the next stage of that is looking at, okay, what about people not even in the country? Do they need dollars? And if so, why? Because they don't pay taxes either. But people outside the United States are just like the customer at the bicycle shop. They are going to want to have dollars so they can pay the bicycle store owner, you know, for bicycles. I. What really brings us home for me is, I think John Harvey told me this, is that companies need to pay their employees in dollars. Employees won't accept wages that are not in dollars or employees expect wages that are in dollars because they have to pay taxes in dollars. The company also has to pay taxes in dollars. The company also has to deal with suppliers that, that pay taxes in dollars that also have to pay employees and suppliers and so on and so on. So I, I for me, uh, for me, employees 
having to be paid in wages of the state is what brings that that cascading relationship home for me. Cool, cool. I'm glad that makes sense. Yeah, and this and this cascade of liabilities doesn't stop at the nation's borders because you know there are people who want to do trade with the U.S. and there are certain things that you can really only get. Not you can really only get, but that it would be difficult to get if you decided, no, I'm not going to hold any dollars for any reason. So this is sort of where the, the cool stuff hypothesis comes into play. And the hypothesis is that people want to save in another country's currency if they might need it to buy that country's cool stuff with it later. And I you know, define cool stuff as all of the goods that a given country makes in greater numbers than most other countries, and that would be difficult for most other countries to start making. So probably the biggest example of, of cool stuff that I talk about in the article is aircraft, spacecraft, and parts for aircraft and spacecraft. And there's this uh, organization called the um, Observatory for Economic Complexity that, that rates the complexity of you know, every good that is traded in sort of international trade. And, and there, there's a couple of different scales. Like there's one that's like, oh, out of a thousand. And there's one that's out of a hundred. Um, but for the aircraft and spacecraft stuff, it's, you know, it's on a scale of 96 pet categories and it's the 33rd most complex to manufacture and produce, you know? So it's in the upper half, you know, not the most difficult thing, but still pretty tough. Um, and the United States is not only a net exporter in aircraft and spacecraft, but the largest exporter in aircraft and spacecraft. So not only can they create tons of stuff for internal use, they can create excess that they can export. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Cause we, you know, we have Boeing and, uh, Lockheed Martin and all, and all these companies, they make tons of planes that, uh, American companies use, and they sell these planes to uh, to other countries for for them to use. And because the U.S. is the biggest exporter of this thing, if you were to say, you know what, let's abandon the dollar, you know, international trade. We don't want to use it anymore. We think it's going to be worthless. Then what you then what you'd be saying is that anyone who wanted to buy a plane would not be buying it from Boeing in the United States. They'd be buying it from Airbus in France, which is the second largest one. And you think, oh, that's fine. You know, France just gets more money. But if all of the demand for planes and spacecraft were concentrated, you know, outside of of the U.S., which makes like 20% of of the planes in the world or something like that, then... Then you'd get into a situation in which, you know, the other countries would have a hard time keeping up with the with the uh, the demand for that supply. You know, if if no one was buying, you know, twenty percent of the planes, that would mean that a hundred percent of people would be putting their money into eighty percent of the products, and the prices for those would would shoot up. There'd be delays. Um, you know, it, it'd be your it'd be the classic sort of shortage story uh, versus demand. 
and that would cause the price of those planes to go up. And eventually someone would cave. Eventually would say, no, I don't want to spend, you know, twice as much and wait twice as long for an Airbus plane. I'm going to buy a plane from Boeing. And what this means for international trade and particularly for the dollar is that because the United States produces so many things that are critically important, that even though it runs a trade deficit, people are still going to want to have dollars so they can, you know, make sure that they can get some of these critical items. Because there is a desire to save for a later point uh, for many reasons, either because, you know, you want to make like a big purchase all at once of a bunch of stuff as opposed to, you know, doing it slowly over time, or just because you're not sure how much you're going to need, or you're not sure what the exchange rate is going to be. Basically the same reason like a household would save its domestic currency, a person, a business person outside of the U.S. would want to save in dollars. And then they and they have these multi-currency accounts uh, for these reasons to where they they'll hold both dollars and euros and and yen and for the purpose of um, getting some protection against the exchange rate and you know to avoid you know paying fees for you know uh, for exchanging the currency and and to them as a as a business owner so if you're you know uh, airline in uh, we'll say Italy, you know, and you need to save up dollars to buy, um, you know, a new fleet of planes from Boeing. It doesn't matter to you that the U.S. is running a, a trade deficit. That's actually good because that means that you'll be able to save those dollars. And the, and the impact of the trade deficit is only negative if the amount of money that the U.S. is putting out is more than those other countries want to save. Now, I'll, I'll stop there, and we can we can talk a little bit well, about that. I, I really struggle. I, I really struggle with understanding, with remembering what the meaning, specific meanings of trade deficit and trade uh, surplus and balance. I mean, balance of trade is easy, but because well, well, let me define trade deficit first. The trade deficit is the amount is the value of a country's imports how much that exceeds the value of its exports so yeah. if i send a tr- if i send 100 hours out if i send 100 hours out and i take in 1000 hours of foreign goods then my trade deficit is 900 dollars i believe that's correct so what's well, hard Go ahead. Sorry, if you if you send a thousand dollars out in exchange for foreign goods, and then you sell a hundred dollars worth of stuff in exchange for foreign money, then your right. trade deficit uh, I, is nine hundred. Yeah. Did I say it opposite? Did I say it wrong? I think you said if you the amount sell, by which the cost of a country's imports exceeds yeah. the value of its exports. So if I if I take in if I take in a thousand in the imports, okay, I don't, yeah, I don't remember what I said. If I take in a thousand of foreign goods, 
the, so the foreign goods I take in, I pay a thousand dollars in U.S. dollars, which have been converted to whatever foreign currencies, but a thousand dollars, and then I, and then I export a hundred dollars, so other countries pay me a hundred dollars. Then what's left out in the world is nine hundred U.S. dollars, right? Yeah. See, it's hard. It's what's hard for me is this is like multi-layered kind of logic, meaning the trade deficit focuses on the money. It doesn't focus yeah. on the goods. And also, we're also dealing with a mainstream view versus versus you know reality, which is kind of secondary here, but still, that's, that's a factor. And also, it's what, per, it's what country your perspective is when you discuss it. So it's it's I always find it hard. I always find it confusing to kind of keep track of you know what we're talking about. And the same thing with the interest rates honestly. Who is the interest rate for? It's income for someone. It's it's uh it's uh, it has to be paid by somebody else and uh, and again mainstream versus reality. So it's 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 hard to kind of keep track of that stuff. But um oh okay. for sure. Yeah, it's it it, it took me a long time to to internalize, you know, especially the interest rate things. Like, wait a minute, why does that mean the the price goes up if the rate goes down? Yeah, it's uh, so yeah. Let's let's try to sort of pick up from there. Yeah. So, so I, I, I yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So we'll talk about sort of the mainstream view is that if you put too much of your country's currency out there into the world, it'll become less valuable. And like many things. That's true in a gold standard world, um, but less true now. And it was true in a gold standard world because everyone's money was pegged to gold and you had to defend it, be able to, con- to convert your money into gold. And countries who have pegged currencies have to be able to cur- convert their money into the dollar or the euro or whatever they're, they're pegged against. So every time you put money out there into the world, you are putting out, you know, a, a very concrete claim against either gold or, or currency that you might not have. So you need to make sure that you're not putting out so much money because uh, if people come to collect and you can't, um, you know, that's a big problem. You have to devaluate, but when you're not pegged to any particular thing, you really only need to worry about putting out more than people would be willing to actually spend. Because in, in a gold standard world, there's a lot more room for speculation that's not attached to any actual sort of buying and selling of goods and services because um, people are betting against your ability to Oh, interesting. The they have the flexibility to bet. I never thought of that before. They have the flexibility. The gold standard is literally requires a limited amount of money in order to, because of converting to gold. But without the gold standard, you have the flexibility to gamble. Uh, I mean, that's, that's an interesting way of putting it. I, I like to say that without the gold standard, you have the flexibility to uh, put out more money into the world because you are not because your promise to convert it into stuff is uh more indirect i'll say that 
So, so you, you so the United States has to meet the demand for their products. They had, like you say in your article, that the U.S. has to be able to produce the products that other countries want, other people in other countries want to purchase, plus people in your own country. The total amount of demand for your stuff, your cool stuff, needs to be met. But there is the additional factor, which I, which because we're not on the gold standard, I mean, I, I don't feel like I have this. I, this is a very vague understanding. But without the gold standard, there is more of an incentive to create essentially conceptual products, which are which you can create infinitely, which is includes financialization, which includes gambling, which includes um, you know financial products. So you can meet the demands for those dollars, which essentially they're not out to buy products. They're out. They're not out to buy actual physical goods or services. They're out to buy more money. They're out to buy more money. And since you have the flexibility of not being stuck, having to defend a gold stock, that you can create, and you have the flexibility to create that money to meet that those financial needs, those uh, gambling needs, essentially. Oh, it I feels, see. You're okay. reasonably close. Oh, that is a completely different point than I was trying to make. It's a very smart point, though. I, that's insightful. I'll have to think about that. Uh, <laughs> wow, that was total but, accidental insightfulness. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the point that I, w- I was making is that if there is a gold standard, um, it's a lot easier for the speculator, like the somewhat, someone who wants to gamble on a currency depreciating, it's a lot easier for them to track how likely it is that it'll depreciate because they're promising to because the country that issues that currency is promising to convert it into one specific thing. Uh, and you can just say, you can just look at that once you have you know, a million pounds of gold and you put out, you know, $2 million worth of money converted uh, sorry, 2 million pounds worth of money claims on gold. Okay. Obviously I should speculate against you. Does that make sense? I think so. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's like if you know that they're 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 converting into one thing, you can just look at how much of that one thing do they have. Okay. But if yeah. they're not promising to convert it into any specific thing and it's more of this abstract, you know, claim on the goods and services of the country, it's a it, it is a lot less reasonable for you to bet on a currency depreciation. Huh. Okay. And I yeah. think my my point about financial instruments essentially is I don't they, they obviously existed under the gold standard as well, um, but I it's just obviously it's much more risky because of ha- the potential default on the gold standard itself. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So when there's when there's no ability to have your peg broken, you can do a lot more things, and some of those things are going to be risky. Yeah. That's as much as I'm willing to say about that without without giving it a real think. Yeah. And let's I, go back I, to yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Let's go back to what you were saying about needing to produce enough stuff for your domestic consumption and for um, external consumption. So, well, let's keep it like a real simple model. I think in the in the article I talk about Canada and Japan. So let's say that um, Canada has a trade deficit with Japan of a hundred Canadian dollars and Japanese people 
they want to save you know 25% of that and spend the rest. So let's say they want they want to spend 75 Canadian dollars worth of stuff. So Canada needs to be able to make $75 worth of stuff for the Japanese people plus however much their own people want to spend. Uh, so let's say they want to spend you know the Canadians want to spend $50 Today I talk with lawyer and independent economics researcher Jonathan Wilson on the reality of the petrodollar or reserve currency, focusing especially on his unique and easy-to-understand cool stuff hypothesis. Jonathan's article on the topic can be found on his website pmpecon.com, and a direct link can also be found in the show notes. The Cool Stuff Hypothesis is a realistic look at how and why a country's currency is desired, spent, and saved by people both in and out of that country. The playful phrase, Cool Stuff, 
was inspired by Stephanie Kelton and her 2020 book, The Deficit Myth, which takes 25 years of MMT academic scholarship and boils it down for a popular non-academic audience. Aside from the academic concepts, what most impressed me about the book is how Stephanie successfully and simultaneously teaches these concepts to those who know nothing and also teaches me, who at the time had been studying the topic for two and a half years, things I never knew. I compare this to how the best movies and kids' music can appeal to both adults and kids. Regarding the Cool Stuff Hypothesis, a gallon of 2% milk is not cool. You can go into one of many stores and reliably and inexpensively find a decent gallon of milk. The stores that sell these uncool products are uncool stores. They're a dime a dozen. On the other hand, some products are cool. They're unique and more difficult to get, and you can only find them at a select number of stores or maybe even one. These stores are therefore cool. We go out of our way to shop there because we want their cool stuff. And it's no different on the international scale. Most countries sell uncool stuff, and some sell very cool stuff that can't be obtained anywhere else. An example of uncool stuff is a customer support call center or website and content creators. An example of cool stuff is the airplanes and airplane parts sold in the United States, such as by Lockheed Martin. A distant second are those sold by Airbus in France. Of course, a store can be cool because it genuinely makes cool stuff. It can also be cool by killing off all its competitors so it's the only game left in town. An example is an international conglomerate entering a local market, charging below cost for as long as it takes to kill off every local competitor, and then using its monopoly power to price gouge. On the international level, as illuminated by the work of Fadl Kaboob and others, a common example is a less powerful country being deceived into predatory loans by a more powerful country. This foreign denominated debt puts the less powerful nation into debt peonage and a perpetual cycle of doing what's best to pay off that short-term debt at the cost of its citizens' daily and long-term survival. It also makes it impossible for that country to ever become cool. What's unique in the international context, however, is that the products from a country can only be purchased with that country's currency. This is because the companies therein must pay taxes in that currency and also must pay their employees and suppliers in that same currency because they too have that tax obligation. It means that anyone who wishes to buy a product from a country, whether a citizen or not, must obtain that currency. Just like a national deficit is the only thing giving citizens wealth, a trade deficit is the only thing that can give foreigners the money with which to buy their cool stuff, both now by spending and in the future by saving. This interview with Jonathan is in three parts. In part one, he describes how he discovered MMT starting with Sam Levy, and then summarizes his cool stuff hypothesis. In part two, he finishes that summary, and then we connect the hypothesis to the ridiculous and hyperbolic theory of the petrodollar. 
In part three, we drastically changed subjects. For the past nine months, Jonathan has assisted me in developing a full and free online course that's not directly or explicitly MMT, but is critical for those who want to better understand it. It's based on the work of Asad Zaman, who was my guest in episodes 56 and 57, and is titled Historical Context for Real-World Economics. The course is produced by activist MMT and hosted by Bill Mitchell's MMT Ed and Isha Krishnaswamy's Historically. More on that in part three. For now, let's get on to part one of my conversation with Jonathan Wilson. Enjoy. Enjoy.